I want you to imagine a boy playing catch with his dad. And that might not take a lot of imagining for some of you, but a little boy playing catch with his dad. And the little boy at this point has gotten as far back from his father as he possibly can to launch the ball and still get it kind of to his dad. I mean, you know how catch goes, right? Every once in a while, you actually hit the target. Most of the time, it's kind of all over the place. And finally, the little boy says to his dad, Dad, I want you to throw it as far as you can. So he tells his son to back up. Son takes a couple steps back, what seems to be really far to him. But then the dad says, no, back up a little further. So he backs up a little further. He's like, no, son, back up further. Because, all right, let's be honest, dads, right? If our son says, throw it as far as you can, like, we will rip our shoulder out of its socket to prove we can launch this ball, right? That's what we're going to do. Um, and so he keeps telling his son to back up, back up, back up. And then finally, the dad lets the ball go, and the son is just dumbfounded. Wow! You can throw it that far? Dad, you're awesome! That's amazing! Then they become teenagers and like, Dad, you're annoying. Go away. Right? As we come to this text this morning, I have that image kind of in mind because if you remember Acts chapter, beginning of Acts chapter 8 last week, the gospel has finally made it to Samaria. And if we jumped all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said before he ascended that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so to see this gospel progress, 120 people, Luke tells us, in that upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and to see that grow, spread to Jerusalem, spread to Judea, now it's made it to Samaria. I mean, the church is encouraged, and they ought to be. They're amazed at how this gospel is spreading, how the Spirit is working. And then we get to this passage, and it's almost as if God says, back up, son, let me show you what I can do. Not to say it's not been God who's been doing this all along, but but God in one shot is going to send the gospel way beyond what those original recipients understood as the ends of the earth. Right? They thought of the ends of the earth as maybe Rome, maybe the edges of the Roman Empire, but, but God in one divine moment takes the gospel and slings it past the boundaries of the Roman Empire, past Egypt, all the way to the Nubian kingdom of Cush in one instant. One instant. And it's incredible, incredible to see as we've mentioned, you, you can, as Justin has mentioned multiple times, you can kind of trace this, this unfolding of, of Acts through this geographic, uh, these locations, the gospel spreading to these areas that we've already mentioned. And from this point on, as we mentioned, the gospels made it to Samaria. And so the majority of the attention for the rest of Acts is going to be this gospel making it to the ends of the earth. I mean, Jerusalem was big. That was a big area to cover. Judea, bigger. Samaria, okay. Biggest section is, okay, ends of the earth, right? That's pretty huge. And what we're going to see now is we're going to see that become the focus. That's going to dominate the attention. This gospel going, this witness to what Christ has done going to the ends of the earth. And something interesting happens as this transition is taking place. Justin mentioned it last week. We get three consecutive individual conversion stories. Now that's interesting because up to this point in the book of Acts, we really haven't had an individual conversion story. 
The closest we've come is the beggar in the temple at the temple gate. But that's not necessarily a, a, a conversion story like these three are. And these three conversion stories are, are, are going to propel us. They're preparing for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. So we get the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch who's physically way far away. Then we get the conversion of Saul who's spiritually way far away. And he's going to become, right, the apostle to the Gentiles. And then we get the conversion of Cornelius, who's covenantally far away. And that is going to, as it were, show that this dividing wall has been broken down in Christ and the gospel, yes, can go and invade the ends of the earth. Before we dive into our passage, I want us to see these three conversion stories all together because I think there's something significant, a couple of significant things that we want to see as we consider them all together. And the first is simply this. When we look at all three of these conversion stories or keep them in mind that this is the way Luke lays these out in Acts, we find this, that the gospel advances even to the ends of the earth one individual at a time. That the gospel advances even to the ends of the earth, one individual at a time. Now Luke has recorded for us moments where mass groups of people have come to faith in Christ. Right? Pentecost, 3,000 people. I'm expecting something like that today. Solomon's portico in the temple, 5,000 people. Right? Now when Luke records that, he's not saying that one person voted for all 3,000. What is he saying? He's saying that in that moment, 3,000 individuals all place their faith in Jesus Christ. Even as there's this transition of focus that the gospel is now going to go to this extremely huge thought of the ends of the earth, it will never advance faster or in any other way than one individual at a time. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were learning how to count? Right? And you annoyed everybody when you learned how to count to a hundred because you wanted to show them you could count to a hundred and everybody's like, I don't, I don't have time for that. Right? You remember how long it took? Then somebody told you you could count by fives or tens. You were like, what? I've been wasting all my time counting by ones. Right? That doesn't work with the gospel. There's no counting by fives. No counting by tens. There's no way to get to the ends of the earth by gathering groups of people together and saying, okay, we're going to get all of you at once. So you guys take a vote and then we're going to bring you up. No, it's one individual at a time. And so here we see three individuals and all along as the gospel marches, it will never go faster than an individual, one individual at a time. Why is that important to us? Well, I would encourage you in this way this morning, brothers and sisters, we need to see individuals. We need to see individuals. There is no shortcut to getting the gospel out and we need to fight against what right now, even in our individualistic culture, is this tendency to put people into groups and to only see people based upon how they're defined in groups. We need to fight against dangerous theories and ideas that come to us and tell us, like critical theory and intersectionality that would tell us the individual 
is, is gone and they're only defined by what group they identify with. There's something incredibly dignifying when the gospel is given to an individual because it is a demonstration of a belief that the value of the person is given to them because they are created in the image of God. So as we go out, we don't go out to conquer groups. We go out to preach the gospel to individuals. And if we're going to preach the gospel to individuals, we have to see individuals. The second thing that I think as we look at all three of these stories together, and this will kind of begin to nestle us into our text this morning, is that the gospel gets to the ends of the earth by God's sovereign power. The gospel gets to the ends of the earth by God's sovereign power. We have this instance here with the Ethiopian eunuch. We've got an angel. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got miracles taking place. We've got Saul's conversion and then we have Cornelius' conversion, so we've got angels involved, the Holy Spirit, visions, and even the risen Lord Jesus Christ showing up. In our passage itself, you've noticed this as it was being read. Verse 26 tells us that an angel from the Lord shows up and tells Philip where to go. Then when Philip shows up and notices the Ethiopian eunuch, it's the Holy Spirit that tells Philip to go catch up to the chariot. Then in verse 39, as soon as Philip is done baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, the, Philip makes, uh, the Holy Spirit makes it abundantly clear that Philip's job is done because he just takes Philip away. Right? Then there are all these things that, if you will, I would like to call them sovereign luck. Right? An oxymoron there, but it, it helps me to think about this. Sovereign luck, right? Oh, it just so happens that there's an Ethiopian eunuch on this road. Oh, it just so happens that he has a scroll of Isaiah. And in that extremely long scroll of Isaiah, it just so happens that he's reading Isaiah 53. And then it just so happens that after Philip has opened his mouth and shared Christ from the Old Testament to this Ethiopian eunuch, that they come across water. Just so happens. Just so happens. Crazy coincidence, right? No, God's sovereign hand is over all of this. And we see this with each one of these conversion stories. Even though they're each different and unique, every single one of them, it's clear that it would not have happened if God's sovereign hand was not involved. Now here's the thing. That is not meant to be a, a demotivation for us. That's supposed to be a motivation for us. That's not supposed to discourage us. That's supposed to encourage us. Be motivated by the fact that God is sovereignly at work in the world to save sinners. Individual sinners. Can you imagine if the, the thought was, as back in the beginning of, of Acts, it was, okay, you, there's 120 of you, and so here's the goal. You just need to get this message about Jesus, I don't know, to the world. No internet. No cars. No planes. You guys just do it. Figure it out. I did my part. See you later. If that was the case, if God's not sovereignly at work, if this isn't His will and He's behind it and He's going to accomplish it, then that 120 should give up. They should have given up. And if if we're thinking this morning that it's going to be our slick strategizing, our marketing campaign, some way, somehow, that we're going to convince people to come to faith in Christ, then we should give up. 
If God's not in this, then we need to stop now. But what we see in each one of these conversion stories and what we see in our own text this morning is that God is at work. Powerfully and mightily at work. I think about this in the Old Testament when Israel would question whether or not they should go into battle. And their question would be, is God with us? Not always. Sometimes they should have asked that question and they didn't. Is God with us? Because if God is with us, then we're charging in. Not long ago, we were looking at uh, the, the relationship between David and Jonathan with the students. And one of these examples comes up with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, where Jonathan is with his armor bearer and the Philistines, they're, they're camped out. And Jonathan finally says, let's go attack that garrison of Philistines. And the armor bearer says, sure. Jonathan says, listen, here's what I'll do. I'll show myself. And if those guys say, come up here, it means the Lord has given them into our hands and we're going. If they say, wait there, we're coming down, we're out of here. So Jonathan shows himself. And sure enough, the Philistines say, come on up here. We want to show you something. Not, not quite like that. but. And what does Jonathan cry out? He cries out in 1 Samuel 14, 12, come after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. What motivated Jonathan? The fact that he believed that God was in it. God was doing it. As we look at these conversion stories, and even as we see this conversion story with the Ethiopian eunuch, and we see the sovereign hand of God involved, it should not discourage us. It encourages us to say, come after me, right? Do you hear Philip crying that to you this morning? Come after me. For the Lord has given them in to Christ's hands. The nations into Christ's hands. God is sovereignly at work, and that should be a motivating factor for us. Now here's a beautiful thing that narrative is able to do for us that, that, that's, that's wonderful because there's this great balance. You cannot read any of these three conversion stories, specifically this one this morning, and not see the sovereign hand of God, but also at the same time not see the importance of obedience and the activities of people. So the next thing I would say to you this morning is God delights to use our obedience to accomplish His sovereign will. God delights to use our obedience to accomplish His sovereign will. Right? Verse 26, the angel shows up and says to Philip, Arise, go toward the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, it doesn't seem that the angel gives any other information to Philip. Philip is in Samaria. As best we know, he's still in the city of Samaria. There is this great um, awakening happening in Samaria. People are coming to faith in Christ. And the angel shows up and says, go to this place, this deserted place. Likely this is the destroyed city of Gaza, not the new city of Gaza. And it's somewhere on the desolate road there. And what does Philip do? Well, the text is very clear. Luke records it for us. It says, verse 27, he arose and went. In fact, we don't get this translated for us, but verse 27 goes on to say, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch. It doesn't translate the little word behold, which is like, whoa, hey, out here in the middle of nowhere, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. So it doesn't seem that the angel told Philip what to expect, but just said, go, Philip goes. I don't even think he gives, per se, the exact location where he's going to meet this Ethiopian eunuch. He just tells him to go. And notice also that while the, while the Spirit yanks Philip out at the end, Philip apparently has to provide his own transportation. 
He called Thomas de Uberim out there. No, he walked, traveled, and every single one of those steps that he took was, guess what? A step of obedience. To go where he had been told to go. He sees this Ethiopian eunuch, and then the Spirit comes. Verse 29, the Spirit says, go over and join the chariot. Now don't have in mind, as a kid, I always imagined like this, this chariot just like tearing down this road. And then the Spirit's like, hey, catch up to that. And Philip, ah, ah, right? Trying to catch up this. That's not. This is more like an ox cart, probably, is what's in mind here. Not like a military chariot, like screaming around. Don't think like Ben Hur kind of thing. So he catches up. What did he, he says, go catch up to it. And what does it say? Verse 30 says, so Philip ran to him. He did exactly what he was told to do. Now, if you think about this for a moment, you go, wait a second. So God sends an angel to Philip so Philip can leave Samaria so he can go out to a deserted place so that he can tell this Ethiopian eunuch about the gospel. Why didn't the angel just go to the Ethiopian eunuch? So the Holy Spirit tells Philip, Catch up with that chariot. Why doesn't Philip say, you're the Holy Spirit. You're already over there anyways. Why am I going to run over there? Because this is how God delights to do it. He delights to use the obedience of his people. Luke is insistent on noting the obedience of Philip. And in all of the conversion stories that we will see, obedience is required. Ananias is required to go to Saul, even though he's a little like, mm, God, you sure on that one? I don't know. Peter required to go to Cornelius. God uses the obedience of his people. Brothers and sisters, living out your, live out your faith in obedience. Obedience is living out our belief that God's plan are better than our plans for our lives. Obedience is living out the belief that God can be trusted and that He is good. Obedience is God's preferred method to get His people where He wants them to be when He wants them to be there. You think about a parent with a little child, a little toddler just begun walking, right? So that's still like that wobble kind of walk. And what's one of the most exciting things to do? How far can I get away from mom and dad? And how fast? Right? So they take off. And what does the parent do? Calls. The desire of that parent would be to get that child back to where they need to be through obedience. That's the desire. That's the best way for the parent. It's the, it's the desire of the parent and it's the best thing for that child. Now, are there other means? Absolutely there are. There are other means to get that child where you want the child to be when you want them to be there. But the preferred method would be the best method, the method that best um, uh, enhances the relationship of that parent and that child is for that child to hear the call of their parent and to obey and get to where they should be when they should be there out of obedience, right? And so it is for you and me. God's preferred method to get us where He wants us to be, to accomplish His will, is through our obedience. 
And every moment is not going to be a moment of seeing an Ethiopian eunuch come to faith in Christ. Remember, there were many steps on this road before Philip gets to the Ethiopian eunuch. Obedience. I wonder if you asked Philip after this experience if he would have said, you know, I mean, it wasn't really worth it. Right? I mean, I was in Samaria. I obeyed, but, you know, it was a long way. It was hot out there. I had to get in the water. I got all wet. I don't think that's what Philip has in mind at all. As we obey God, we have this wonderful joy of experiencing, of enjoying relationship with Him. As we obey Him, we have this wonderful experience of being an instrument in His hands to accomplish His purposes. Now, I think Philip was a man of the Word, and I think we'll see that as we continue in this text. And I wonder if in that moment, or perhaps later on, in Philip's mind, he he reflects on Psalm 86. Because in Psalm 86, we have this, this psalm about the supreme authority of God over all of the earth. I mean, it's over every nation. It's over everything. He is sovereign over it all. His authority rules over all. And, and in many ways, it's speaking of a present reality, but also a future reality that will be manifested in the kingdom. And in that psalm, starting in verse 28, this is what we read. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds. That's probably a reference to Egypt. And the herd of bulls with the calves of the people, probably Bashan. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt and listen to this. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hand to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praise to the Lord, to Him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, He sends out His voice, His mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the sky. Awesome is God from His sanctuary. The God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. And what does Philip get to do because he walks in faithful obedience? What does he get to experience? He gets to experience this inbreaking, this beginning of this realizing of this taking place. Not the fullness of it, but the beginning of it. He gets to see Cush stretch out her hand to God as this Ethiopian eunuch responds to the Gospel. I don't think Philip would have been disappointed at all. In fact, I think he would have, he delighted in this opportunity. You and I are encouraged because we get to read this passage. Philip got to live this passage. And he got there because of obedience. The next thing I think that we see is that God uses the sharing of the gospel to save sinners. God uses the sharing of the gospel to save sinners. Again, this is something we see in all three conversion accounts, but here uh, we've already emphasized this some. God goes to extraordinary means to get Philip to this Ethiopian eunuch so that Philip can preach the gospel to him. 
God could have just sent the angel, but He doesn't. He could have just sent the Holy Spirit, but He doesn't. Instead, He sends Philip to this man. So when Philip gets to the chariot and he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading, he's reading out loud, which was common in those days, Philip asks a great question. Do you understand what you are reading? And in verse 31, the man says, how can I unless I have a guide? And he invites Philip up into the chariot and he continues to read and he reads this section from Isaiah 53. And Philip here takes, and, and, and the text tells us in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Literally translating that, it would be he gospeled Jesus to him. He declared to him the good news about Jesus. Now what's so beautiful about this is that, I, that Philip is doing this out of Isaiah 53, which as it was read this morning, as Steve read Isaiah 53, where we sit... In the New Covenant, we look back and we go, obviously that's Jesus. But during Second Temple Judaism, uh, Isaiah 53 was, was one that they struggled with because they identified more with the first half of Isaiah, which was this, this kingly Messiah who was coming. What they had envisioned was an exalted, triumphant, positive figure of a Messiah who would defeat the nations. And for them, this connection that Isaiah makes with this, this servant that's been so triumphant in the first part of Isaiah, now with this suffering, and particularly with the idea that, that an individual would bear the sins of another, this was totally foreign. I mean, sure, they had sacrifices, and maybe a, a, a ram or a goat or a, or a sacrifice would bear sins of someone else, but a person? How's Philip come to this understanding? How has he arrived at the place where he, not, not an apostle himself, how does he arrive at the place where he's able to take Isaiah 53 and preach Christ from it? How has Philip arrived at the point that he's able to preach Christ from the Old Testament? Well, you remember back towards the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it talks about they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? This is how Philip gets to this point. Because he knows the Word. Now what's interesting about this particular section that Luke quotes for us here is that it focuses in on the fact that someone who is innocent has died. Like a lamb who was led to the slaughter, or like a sheep, excuse me, is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Now what's happening here is a theme is being picked up which Luke uses back in, the, in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 22, as Luke moves Jesus towards the moment of His crucifixion, He specifically tells His disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, that He must be numbered among the transgressors to fulfill what Scripture has written. Then in the next chapter, Luke 23, no less than six times during Jesus' trial is it made abundantly clear that Jesus is innocent. 
He's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's not done anything worthy of death. It's repeated over and over and over again. And then unique to Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, the centurion upon Jesus' death and the curtain in the temple tearing in two, the centurion declares, certainly this man was innocent. That word innocent is the word righteous. Surely this man was righteous. This is the same thing we see that Peter picks up on when he preaches at Pentecost. This idea of Jesus' innocence, that he had done nothing wrong and yet you killed him. He makes it abundantly clear in his sermon there in Solomon's portico, there at the temple in Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. And goes on to say, you asked for a murderer in his place. If Jesus was innocent, if he, if he did not die for his own sins, for some wrong he had committed, then it must be that what he said was true. It must be that what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be, was true. So Philip, Philip preaches Christ, he gospels Christ from the Old Testament to this man. This is the way that it happens. The gospel declared clearly that someone else might understand it. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Be a student of the word that you might declare the word. Study to know him that you might make him known. I remember coming back from Senegal one time and we went to together for the gospel which is a huge conference, thousands and thousands of pastors from all over. And I mean, it was like within a week or so since, since I had gotten back in the States and some of the elders loaded up. We went to together for the gospel. And I can remember, it hadn't been that long ago before we left Senegal. We were in the capital, in Dakar, and I went to the Christian bookstore in Senegal. And I'm rummaging through this quote-unquote Christian bookstore, and there are hardly any resources. Some of them I'm going, oh my word, why did we translate that? And those types of things. And this is just into French, okay? This isn't into the tribal languages. Not many of the books were translated into the tribal languages. This is just into French. And there are hardly any resources. So then we get to together for the gospel, and we go to the session, and they tell you about these books they're going to give you, and this bookstore. And then you walk over to this conference center that is just yards and yards and yards of books. All in my heart language. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the theology of all those books was, was solid. But here's what I am saying. I am saying that you and I have an incredible amount of resources in our heart language. That the world would, I mean, our brothers and sisters in Christ would be overwhelmed just to have a portion of that in their heart language. We have commentaries and we have Bible studies and we have, we have multiple versions of, of, of the Bible translated into our language, not to mention the amount of sermons that you can have access to that are all in English and podcast and the list goes on and on and on. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning that, that to be confident and to be ready to share the gospel, you need to know the gospel. To be confident and ready to declare Christ, it would be helpful if you know Christ. If you're not regurgitating something that you've just heard, but you are talking about a person who you consistently are obeying and the person that you know because you have studied. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to leave here and, leave here and sign up for seminary. But can I just ask you, could I ask you this morning, how much are you taking advantage of all of the resources that are available in English that are good quality resources that will help you to understand the Word of God better? If you were to lay out the amount of time that you spend on entertainment versus the amount of time you spend in the study of God's Word, what would that ratio look like? Could we just diminish the entertainment side, watch a little less, scroll a little less, and devote a little bit more time to just just a solid podcast that's, that's talking about, that's helping you to understand the Word of God. Devote a little more time to the study of Scripture. Among the many things we are abundant in, we are abundant in solid biblical resources. Brothers and sisters in Christ, avail yourselves of them. Okay, so I'm on this theme with Senegal, so I'm just going to stay there. Whenever there was a break from the universities, um, students would hit the streets. These university students, they would hit the streets. Some of them were from other places in West Africa, but they would hit the streets, and you could tell right away school break was in because there'd be these university students, and they would be dressed up as nice as they possibly could. It is blazing hot. They're pouring sweat they're carrying these huge bags and they're going door to door and they're trying to sell these products this is like the only job they can get they're going door to door and they're trying to sell these products now they've never used these products because they can't afford the products right and all they're doing is they're knocking on your door being very polite of course ask how you are all that you can't just start trying to sell a product in synagogue doesn't work that way how are you blah blah blah. get through all that then they launch into their monologue about the product right now, lots of times we felt sorry for them, so we'd give them something to drink, and then we'd buy one of these products that would never be used because they were basically worthless, but they would launch into their spill about the product, right? They've not used the product, and they, if you try to ask them a question that's outside of the range of their monologue, uh, uh, you know, maybe they make something up, but back to the monologue. And these monologues had clearly been designed by somebody who was attempting to use slick marketing techniques to get you to say, yes, I will buy this lotion that is predominantly water and I will pay way too much for it. Well, can I just say sometimes we can come across that way when we go to share the gospel? You know, I'm not, I'm not really walking in obedience with Christ right now. I'm not really seeking to, to honor Him in my life, so I'm not really using this product. Um, and all I'm doing right now is regurgitating something that an evangelist one time, this method that he told me to use. And so don't ask me anything outside of that. But here, take this. If we consider the fact that as we go out, the gospel advances one individual at a time, 
If we go out walking in obedience, believing and showing with our lives this faith that, that God is good and we believe it and we're living it and then we're studying God's word. And so as we come into these moments and opportunities to share the gospel, we're not just sharing about someone we've heard about him, but someone that we're growing to know more and more. I'd encourage you, I encourage you to invest that time in the study of God's Word, and to be increasing in that, to be an ever-increasing student of the Word of God. Well, lastly, I'll say this. God is preparing people from far away, even the ends of the earth, to receive the Gospel. God is preparing people from far away, even the ends of the earth, to receive the Gospel. I know some of you are wondering, man, we've been through this whole passage, and in my Bible it says this passage is about the Ethiopian eunuch. We haven't even talked about the Ethiopian eunuch yet. The Ethiopian eunuch, when you hear Ethiopian, don't think Ethiopia current day. This man was from, uh, as I've mentioned, the, the, he was from Kush, the, the, the Nubian kingdom of Kush, which is right down the Nile, south of Egypt. Uh, and the, the text is clear. This man was rather, probably rather wealthy. He's a court official of Candace. Candace was the name of the dynasty, as it were, of the queens. So that's not the name of the queen herself, but it's this, this dynasty of queens that was there in Kush. He was in charge of all of her treasury. So this man is, is probably rather wealthy. We know he's an educated man because he's reading, uh, Isaiah, probably in Hebrew. We know that he's wealthy because he has a copy of Isaiah. That would not have been cheap to have a copy of Isaiah. So we're given all of these details about this man, but then we're also told that this man has gone to Jerusalem specifically to worship. And the text is clear there. It's not like he was on a business trip and then he stopped by Jerusalem to worship, but he's gone to Jerusalem specifically to worship. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Acts says that trip to Jerusalem from where this man was probably located took about five months either way. Now think about how committed you would have to be to something to take a five-month trip there. I know Justin and Van went to Israel recently, but I don't think it took five months. And they might have reconsidered had it taken them five months to get there on a chariot. So some believe that this man, and it's possible, he could have been a Jew. He could have been a diaspora Jew, one that had been scattered during the exiles. What's probably more likely is that this man is a proselyte. He is a Gentile who is converted to Judaism. He clearly has a strong devotion to worship in Jerusalem, and he's traveled all this way to get there. And he's invested in it. He's bought a scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading that scroll. Here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is that the text tells us that this man is a eunuch. Now, there is a possibility that it's saying he's a eunuch could just mean that he's an official. But Luke goes on to describe that he's an official, so it probably means by eunuch that he's an actual eunuch. This man is castrated. And if that's the case, and this is a castrated man, whether he is a Jew or he is a proselyte, it means, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, that he is not allowed in the assembly of God. Which would mean this man traveled for five months to get to Jerusalem so that at best, he could enter the court of the Gentiles and be maybe on the fringes. Perhaps he shows up in Jerusalem and is only able to worship in the synagogues. And yet this man is incredibly humble. He's reading and he acknowledges that he doesn't understand. 
And his comment in verse 31 is not a snarky comment to Philip asking, do you understand? And he's like, well, how can I? No, he's saying, this, this wealthy, educated man is saying, how could I understand this unless someone guides me? How could I get it unless I get help? And he invites Philip up into the chariot. He listens as Philip explains the text to him, having asked this question, is this passage about the prophet or someone else? And Philip lays out the gospel to him, verse 35, and then we get this question in verse 36 from the Ethiopian eunuch, which is a rhetorical question, which is incredible. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, back at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins shall be preached to all nations starting in Jerusalem. What Philip has done is he's explained to this man that, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he came, as Luke so clearly lays out in his Gospel, and he was a friend to tax collectors and to sinners, that he came as a, as a physician seeking the sick. He came seeking the lost. So when this Ethiopian eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? What is he saying? He's not just asking, can I be baptized? Is there something? For... He's saying, if Jesus came to save sinners, if Jesus came to give mercy to those who, who have no other option, if Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost, if He came as a physician to those who are sick, then what prevents me from being baptized? Because I'm lost. Because I'm a sinner. Because I'm sick. And I have no hope apart from Christ. And so he says to Philip, what would prevent me? What would prevent me? I believe. I believe. What would prevent me? He commands the chariot to stop and they go down into the water. Those of us who believe in immersion, we love that part. They went down into the water. We like to highlight that section. They went down into the water. Right? And he's baptized. Now something happens here as well that flows out of Luke's Gospel here into Acts. And we see it over and over again. And what does it say that this Ethiopian eunuch did? This is connected all throughout Luke's Gospel with repentance. And it's highlighted in Jesus' parables in Luke 15. There's a lost sheep that's found. And what happens when the lost sheep is found? Spend the rest of the day just beating the tar out of that stupid sheep. Rejoicing! Woman loses a coin. She finds it. What happens? Rejoicing. And then you have the parable of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son returns, the father's like, you stupid boy. No, what happens? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that in the mind of the older son who doesn't esteem himself as needing forgiveness, he's repulsed by the celebration. How could you? How could you? There's rejoicing. Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. God rejoices when sinners repent. Angels rejoice when sinners repent. And when sinners repent, they find themselves in great joy. And what does this man do? Verse 39 says, he went his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Even though Philip disappears, 
he goes his way rejoicing. Why? Because he was saved. He found mercy. Because there was nothing preventing him from baptism because Christ had done it all. Brothers and sisters, believe God is preparing others to hear the gospel. Know that this is not a limited instance. This is not just something that's contained in the book of Acts. That God is at work in the lives of people and He is preparing them to hear the gospel that they might believe. Know that God is active and working to do this. That there are others, as Jesus talks about, other sheep who when they hear His voice, they will respond. Believe that God is preparing those who will hear as we mentioned before, I can almost hear Philip crying out like Jonathan, come after me, come after me, come after me. The Lord has given the nations into Jesus' hands. Come after me for there are those who are ready and they will receive. And just like each one of these conversions, if we go out and we say, well, let me figure out who I think will get saved. We would not if we were Philip have thought an Ethiopian eunuch would come to faith in Christ. And no one would have thought Saul who was there rejoicing at the stoning of Stephen would come to faith in Christ. Then nobody would pick a Gentile soldier to come to faith in Christ. And guess what the other conversions are described in the book of Acts? It's a rich Gentile woman, Lydia, who comes to faith in Christ. And it's a Philippian jailer whose conversion is described as he comes to faith in Christ. And none of us would look at them and say, oh, they're primed to receive Christ. What was happening? God was at work in them and He brought the Gospel to them and they responded. And how did He bring it to them? In every instance, how does it get there? It gets there through His sovereign hand delighting to work through the obedience of His people as they declare the Gospel. What a privilege we have. So my encouragement to you this morning is that. May we believe that the sovereign hand of God is at work. And that He delights to work out that sovereign will through the obedience of His people as they declare the Gospel because there are those out there who He is preparing to hear. May we come after Philip because God has given the nations into Jesus' hands. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for this wonderfully encouraging passage I thank you, Lord, for this testimony that we have of this Ethiopian eunuch who comes to faith in Christ. And I pray, Father, I pray that this moment like this we've got right here, kind of this, this mini missions conference that we, we have happening this, this weekend, that it would remind us, it would encourage us, it would spur us on to walk in obedience, to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to those you bring into our lives. Some aren't going to listen. Some are going to refuse it. Some won't hear. But there are those who you are preparing and we believe that you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would go in boldness and compassion, seeing individuals declaring the gospel to them. So, Lord, work in us for the glory of your Son, who is the Lamb that was slain and who is worthy of the worship of all of the peoples of the world. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.